0: Aloha, mahalo for joining us. It's Monday, November 13th. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hawaii Talks on The Conversation. Pushing back, hundreds of people crowded the entrance of Ala Moana Beach Park this weekend, calling for the end to bombing in Palestine. The death toll is said to be more than 10 times that of the attack by Hamas terrorists on Israel more than a month ago. We get the perspective of a Red Cross volunteer who answered the call to help following the Maui wildfires. And with a tentative settlement in the actor's strike, what does that mean for local productions? And a Pacific storyteller shares her culture through children's stories and tougher issues affecting our community. <laughs> This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The World Health Organization said a child is killed every 10 minutes in Gaza and that half of the hospitals are not functioning. Last week in one day, there were reported five attacks on five hospitals. Over 1,200 Israelis and 11,000 Palestinians, mostly children, are dead. Today, the New York Times reports that the Israeli defense forces are at the gate of Gaza's main Hospital al-Shifa, which no longer functions after three days of no power. More than 1.6 million are now displaced. Citizens are protesting across the globe, including here on Oahu. Hundreds lined the corner of Alamoana and Atkinson this past Sunday afternoon. Among those in the crowd this weekend, Hakeem Wangfasi and Imari Altimus Williams. Wansafi is with the Muse- uh, Muslim Association here in Hawaii, and Altimus Williams is with the Jewish Voice for Peace Hawaii. We hear first from Wansafi.
1: Well, we all in gathered, uh, the Christians, the Jews, the Muslims, people with faith and no faith, with one common goal, stop the war. Stop the killing of the innocent civilians. Stop targeting infrastructure of civilians. Stop bombing hospitals. How difficult is it? How difficult is it for our politicians to say to Netanyahu's regime, a far right regime, stop Targeting innocent life, start targeting civilians. These are children that are dying. Over 5,000 children has been massacred. One and a half million people have been kicked out of their homes. It's a pure ethnic cleansing and genocide in front of our eyes. So we are here to say to our president and to our elected officials, push Israel. We give them billions of dollars. The minimum they can do is to listen. It is not sufficient for uh, President Biden to say, I asked Netanyahu and he said no. Who is Netanyahu to say no? We give them billions of our taxpayers, stop the armament, $360 million of bombs so they can replenish to drop more bombs than innocent civilians.
0: It it is heartbreaking, you know, because you're hearing stories that, oh, uh, Hamas, you know, has their tunnels underneath the hospitals. And you're just thinking, You know, how can that be when, you know, there are, like you mentioned, children are dying in those hospitals. There's
1: fuel and water
0: issues, medicine. This
1: this has never been about Hamas. I mean, the West Bank, people are suffering and dying and killing. There's no Hamas in West Bank. So the, the, the idea that they're doing this because of Hamas is absolutely false. It is not about Hamas. It is about gaining more land. It is exactly about ethnic cleansing. They're finding a reason that they want. If it is about Hamas, why is it that they're still bombing and killing civilians in the West Bank? It is not controlled by Hamas, and it it's not managed by Hamas. And the fact of the matter is, if bunch of terrorists go to the World Trade Center and hide there Will you gonna bomb the entire Center kill tens of thousands of innocent people so you can get 10 20 30 it is absolutely absurd it is absolutely nothing and how, how can you even say that when international community and international doctors has said in the hospitals there are no Hamas there are children There are nurses. How can you bomb ambulances and entrances? How can you stop water and food? It is absolutely ludicrous to use an excuse that it's Hamas. This is not about Hamas.
0: And then do you uh, have friends and family over there in that area, you know, that have been living through this?
1: We have hundreds of Palestinians in our community, and all of them know a few people who have been massacred. Uh, This has been ongoing for years, the open-air prison. But, I
0: mean, recently with this, in the last month?
1: yes, yes. We have people who have been deeply affected. We have people who lost their families. We have a family that lost seven members of their families someone here yes someone here in Hawaii and they're afraid to speak because the 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 government of Netanyahu says anybody who speaks against the war is supporting terrorism it is absolutely absurd that the people that saying stop the war stop the killing of civilians are terrorists and those who say continue the war continue killing the civilians, those are the good people and then you know
0: it was not that long ago where we were living the Muslim ban and there were threats against members of our community. Is that still ongoing today?
1: Well, the, the, this, uh, this conflict and the actions of uh, Biden and, and, and Netanyahu uh, has certainly have affected uh, the Muslim community more than any other community. I mean, they are a Zionist group that are intent and causing trouble for the Muslims, threatening the Muslims, and that's ongoing. Uh, It it happened after 9-11, we see it again now happening. And this is is not what the Allah spirit is all about. And that's why we came here today in full force. There is not, the majority of people here are Christians and Jews and Buddhists and others. The minority here are Muslims, but they all have one common goal, stop the killing of the civilians.
0: And I know that they were talking about trying to negotiate a pause and yet you know folks are saying a pause is not good enough but if we could just get a pause if we can't get
1: a ceasefire it really doesn't make any sense to say to the people we're going to give you four hours before we start bombing you for 20 hours how is that how is that possible how can a family of innocent people or doctors care for their for their sick people if you tell them i have four hours It is not. Four hours, then I'm going to bomb you for 20. It, It is nothing but a political maneuver. It's a political to say we're trying to do something. There is nothing short of a ceasefire for the civilians, for the hospitals, for the schools, to get the injured cared for, to bring food and medicine. And gasoline that's needed and generation. That's the only thing that's going to work. A pause for four hours, then we're going to bomb the hell out of you for 20 more hours. It does not make sense.
0: That was a very passionate Hakeem Wasafi, the head of the Muslim Association of Hawai'i, who is calling on the Hawai'i congressional delegation to press for a ceasefire in this latest chapter of the Middle East conflict. For another Oahu resident, a visit to Palestine opened her years to the misery playing out on the other side of the world. Imani Altimus Williams, who is Jewish, grew up in Hawaii and was trying to make sense of the latest developments.
2: I'm here today as a Jewish person, as a woman of color, um, someone who's also grown up here in Hawaii in another occupied place, who feel very strongly that, especially as a Jewish person, that i can't i know what genocide feels like i know what oppression feels like and i don't i cannot stand for the oppression of any peoples especially with what israel is doing in our name and saying that as jews that this is what's going to make us safe i don't think that this is making anyone safe and i think we'll all be free when all of us are truly free, which means Palestinian freedom
0: and liberation as well. And it was just a little more than a month ago that we saw what happened with the Hamas terrorists attacking those poor people, you know, at the music festival, at the kibbutz. It, it was just so sad to watch. Yeah,
2: I mean, I, I'm i heartbroken for any families that have to endure the killing of their loved ones. and and. I, I'm sad for everyone that's, that's grieving the families of their loved ones who have who've been killed. I think also one thing that's propelled me today among many things but is last year at this time I was in Palestine. And so even before everything that's been happening right now with this genocide that we're seeing in Gaza, What I imagined it to be like in terms of the oppression that Palestinians are facing in Israel is and in Palestine is beyond. It's like a thousand times worse than even what I imagined. I so that that is a a huge impetus um, for why I'm here, too, is even before what's going on, I cannot cannot imagine undergoing that sort of oppression. So you saw for yourself with your own eyes and what led you to go over there? Um, I think similarly, just as I was curious, I never went to Israel, um, even though, you know, I could have gone on birthright or could have gone on these things. And so I was curious to see what was the, the persecution that I was hearing about, what did it actually look like. Also, like I said, growing up here and hearing about an understanding growing up here in occupation, I wanted to see what does occupation look like there as a person of color wanting to i think really show my solidarity to folks that i was hearing were being persecuted similar to today in our name as jewish people too
0: Th- that's why it was important for you to
2: come down here today that's why it was important for me to come down here today and why i will continue in coming down and um showing up for palestinian liberation because i truly believe that like i said when we're all free all of us are going to be free but we uh, jewish people aren't going to find and, and I mean, I really strongly believe anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. There is a very big distinction. But this idea that um, Israel is saying in terms of that we're all going to be, that this is for the safety of Jews, so many of us do not feel that way. This is not bringing us more safety. I actually think it's bringing us a lot more um, harm. (laughs) And you just want peace. You all want peace. I want peace and I want justice for all of us.
0: That was Imani Altimus Williams with the Hawaii chapter of a group called Jewish Voices for Peace. The conversation Stephanie Hahn spoke with others who felt compelled to join yesterday, yesterday's rally. We hear from Alema Fitisimanu and Rhea Solito on why the call for a ceasefire on Palestine matters to Pacific Islanders. Hi, my name is Alema Fitusumanu, I'm a user experience designer, I work in
2: tech, and I'm from Samoa and Tonga, and uh, yeah, I'm for the freedom of all indigenous peoples, and so that's why I'm here supporting Palestine. And
3: what do you think about the five of the Pacific Island nations voting with the U.S. and Israel to continue the bombing action in Gaza. It was five Pacific Islander nations. Can you speak to this?
2: Yeah, so uh, I'm from Samoa and Tonga. I believe uh, Samoa didn't vote, or and I think uh, Tonga did vote for uh, yes to side with the U.S. and Israel, and I think that's pretty shameful. I think we need to have more of a background to stand for what's right, and so I disagree with that wholeheartedly, and we need to support The Palestinian people at this time.
3: Any insight as to why the Tongans might have voted in this way?
2: I think uh, probably because we care a lot about what the U.S. thinks and we want that for us, but I think that's not going to serve us in the long term. I think we need to stand in solidarity with the Palestinians, and I think that will be more freedom for all of us.
0: My name is Raya. I'm a Kanaka Maoli EMT for the city. I'm here because our our cause stretches across the
3: world. I mean, Native Hawaiians have been occupied for hundreds of years, and the same thing is happening in Palestine, and, you know, we deserve our sovereignty.
4: A lot of people who are in the same cause for Native Hawaiians also represent Palestine, and, and you see a lot of similarity there, and so it, it's kind of common sense
3: for me, yeah, to, to speak up and use my voice and come to these things. Are you getting different kinds of reactions about your belief now? Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot that people don't understand, so it's a lot of fear and confusion. I think once you sit down and have a conversation with somebody, you really understand why we're doing this, You know what our goal is and how these things are connected. People really join in with you.
0: Those were some of the voices from yesterday's rally in Honolulu calling for peace between Palestine and Israel. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported, Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz.
5: Onihoa, hoa, onihao, hua, o'a, hao, o kawa, o
0: o o molokai, o lanai, o mahu, o o hawaii. Today we're going back into history to look at the beginnings of Okolihau, also known as Hawaiian moonshine. The process of creating an alcoholic drink dates back to the 1780s when Captain Nathaniel Portlock made beer from the root of the tea plant for sailors. Back then, Native Hawaiians consumed Ava, derived from the Ava plant, a native to the Pacific Islands, but... This was non-fermented, uh, non-alcoholic, non-hallucigenic and non-addicting. Abba was considered sacred and was highly regulated for ceremonial purposes. A decade after beer was first made, William Stevenson, an escaped Australian convict, modified the fermenting process and developed a local spirit. He showed Hawaiians how to distill a mash of these fermented roots in iron pots. After perfecting this technique, okolehau consumption skyrocketed. In fact, King Kalakaua loved it so much, he was said to have granted a full royal pardon to a man once in prison for making illegal moonshine. For today's quiz, what were those iron pots originally used for? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag.
6: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as women in need on Kauai. Nairithawaii.com
0: It's been a little more than three months since the wildfires on Maui. Oahu resident Tom Holowak is just back from his second stint as a Red Cross volunteer there on the Valley Isle. Uh, The retired uh, Palico theater manager reflected on his experience after jumping in to help when there was a great need. He is resolved to help our community become more resilient.
5: They had 11,000 volunteers in Hawaii and 3,000 of them in Maui alone. So we were trained and then told to stand down because they had enough. But then the next week they called and said, you know, we really need some people from like other islands who can come who know Hawaii because the people from the mainland just needed help in understanding how to deal with our culture. Most of all, just sitting down and talking story with people because you're dealing with people who've just had literally the worst day of their life. And they weren't just boxes to check off on a form. You just really had to pull it out of them. So uh, I spent three weeks there the first time, and uh, that was, I was one of the second wave. The first wave was really all people from the mainland. I mean, there are people on the mainland and, and all over the country, really, who have a knapsack packed and ready to go. And they say, you get out on a plane tomorrow, and that's the caliber of people who are here. And right, then whether it's a
0: hurricane, typhoon, you know, you Exactly. As a
5: matter of fact, a lot of people don't realize, as I did not, is that the Red Cross sends somebody to respond to every single house fire in the country, even here. There are people who work four shifts and have a phone tree uh, and do that. Obviously, this was the largest disaster to happen in a long time, so they brought a huge number of people from the mainland who were able to jump in and respond as quickly as possible. But the problem is is that there was a huge mistrust of people coming in from the mainland, partly because the Red Cross gets confused with the government. And the, the government, quote unquote, um, is seen as this, you know, sort of uh, faceless creature who will does does you no good.
0: Yeah, a lot of red tape attached. to A lot to of this. red
5: tape, <laughs> and and, and as, there was also all of these conspiracy theories about how if you sign up for FEMA, they will take your house. And I cannot tell you how many people had to talk off that position. And the Red Cross is is completely a volunteer organization. People don't know that that we're an NGO. Uh, it's completely funded by volunteer or by uh, donor dollars from from everywhere and uh, a lot of people responded to this which is uh, which gave the Red Cross a lot of resources to be able to act fast and get people over faster in some uh, ways than FEMA because they were able to uh, be a little more nimble and they didn't have the bureaucracy to deal with but a lot of the people that uh, we talked with over there uh, besides being in shock, we're really afraid of being taken advantage of. And you know, you know, because of the history and because of the annexation and all of that, it was such a complicated set of issues. And then to have it be confused with all of these conspiracy theories mm-hmm. at the same time, I, I don't think that the Red Cross or our FEMA has ever had to deal with such a bizarre combination of factors working against them. besides, mother nature or whatever disaster it was that they were responding to
0: yeah i mean i thought that was stunning some of the stories about oh you know there's this conspiracy and and uh, you know they were using these directed energy machines mm-hmm. and, and uh it, it it just was very sad to see how things got twisted when you knew certain facts and then you know you yeah. had out these outside forces just turn it all awry
5: yeah and and the people were saying, well, why aren't they telling us anything? Why are they putting up these black walls? What is it they're trying to hide? And everyone was tiptoeing around the fact uh, the responsible people who knew what was going on. They're saying, why can't we go in there? And at that point, no one wanted to say the words, well, because there are cremated human remains everywhere, and we don't know exactly where or how to find them. And we and don't so want to disturb them. We can't yep. disturb any of that but no one wanted to say those words. So there was, in general, a lack of communication, which was one of the things that the Red Cross kind of had to go in and, um, and help with, because, I mean, yes, we were giving immediate money, we were providing food, we were getting people into permanent shelters, but we were also acting as social workers, which they don't like to use that term, but frankly, uh, when you're getting all the information out that you need to help someone on with their life from that point on, you have to ask a lot of personal questions about yeah. their family, their situation, their 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 jobs, or even their pets, and what the names of the pets were, and what their names are. Yeah, know,
0: I mean, right? they're just traumatized. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, when you went over there the first time, uh, You shared that, you know, you were, what, sleeping uh,
5: in the gym, right? In the gym, yeah. It was um, typically, well, we we think of a disaster. After a disaster, everybody gets housed in the gym. And and in this case, they were in the War Memorial Auditorium. The Red Cross volunteers who came in were in the uh, fairly nice new gym in South Kihei. And it was, um, they call that congregate sheltering. And so um, it, was, uh, it was It was actually kind of funny trying to describe it to my wife. I said, okay, it was like um, summer camp, a co-ed sleepover, and you've got uh, mostly senior citizens, you know, mostly people who are retired, and, and uh, people had various combinations of, you know, pajamas and things <laughs> that they were sleeping in, and, you know, it, but it, it was all very, you know." It, innocent and then um, we would turn the lights off at 10 and on at 6, very sharp curfew. All of a sudden, it was completely dark. But it was so funny because the lights would go off and you would look around the gym and you would see all of these glowing screens, which is something that I'm sure you never used to see in in shelters. It was kind of like when you're on a uh, a, a night eye, uh, a red-eye plane and you they turn off all the lights and you look around and you see all these glowing screens of yeah. people watching different movies. And it was just... You know, the, the, the people who volunteer for these things give up their life for two to three weeks, and they come, and a lot of people are writing emails, a lot of people are watching movies, but uh, mostly they're trying to go to sleep because the lights go back on at 6. six and yep. <laughs> the people in Kihei had to get on a shuttle to go to on a poly by 7. Wow. And you know what kind of a drive that is. It's uh, fortunately there wasn't a lot of traffic, but that's just a long drive, no matter what. So yeah. that adds on to the day. So the days were we worked seven to seven, but if you add travel time onto it, we were really uh, working from six a.m. to eight p.m. A lot and of people.
0: And then you signed up for a second
5: stint. Yeah, I. Uh, they said, are you coming back? And I said, well, if they need me. But at that point, it sounded like they were really making an effort to hire local people, uh, give them jobs, people who had lost their jobs, and, and, and people who really knew the people in the area and, and could empathize with them and, and, and take that down. But uh, the problem was is that um, they, everyone now is having a hard time hiring help you've got everyone from fast food restaurants to you know fine dining to retail stores is is having a problem with this and the Red Cross was no different Uh, especially when you start to ask someone to have a job which requires you to work for 12 hours uh, a day uh, six days a week and yes you're getting paid for that but that's a long stretch and so um, there were some people who signed up for that, who got into it, and said, "No, maybe this isn't the thing for me." So they asked some of us who were uh, on Oahu and other islands to make the hop over because it was easier and cheaper than bringing people from the mainland.
0: And so, have they uh, uh, sent back the folks, the volunteers that uh, that came over?
5: Slowly but surely, um, we had um, we had 300 at one point. Uh, that. Uh, that was right at the peak of um, their sheltering then once we got people into hotels uh, they were able to cut down on that um, by the time i left last time we were down to 200 and uh, when i arrived this time we're down to about 100 people from the mainland unfortunately, too few to do all of the jobs that have to be done. It's organized in a very military way, and it's something that has to be in order to get things done. But everyone has to do their job. And in this case, we had people who were instantly cross-training to other people's jobs because we just didn't have enough warm bodies. So what was the the takeaway for you? The takeaway for me, oddly enough, has very little to do with Lahaina specifically, but a lot to do about Hawaii and its state of preparation for disasters. I have gotten very interested in it now, and I told someone that maybe this was a message from the universe that it's something that I need to to do because the main attitude that I saw from a lot of the people there was, there was certainly gratitude, but there was frustration because in the beginning it was just hard to get information, and it was hard to get supplies. And in fact, people expect, even though the government is this this hated uh, institution, people still expect the government to descend like deus ex machina from the sky and, and drop in immediately and save you with supplies. And what everyone needs to understand is that doesn't happen. And it's not because the system is broken. It's just because the logistics of doing it are massive and the wheels start at zero and they have to start turning. We all need to be prepared much more than most people I know are prepared for any kind of disaster.
0: So you really feel then the need to help us become more resilient?
5: I do. I said to someone, trying to be philosophical, but I said, when bad things happen to good people, everybody says, why? And what I hope is that the poor souls who gave their lives uh, during this event, if that happened in order to make us all more aware that we all need to save ourselves first, We all need to put the oxygen mask on ourselves first and then take care of the kids and and everything. Then maybe their sacrifice will not have been in vain because the lesson that we have learned from, unfortunately, losing all all of these people who are in our ohana is that the ohana takes care of itself. But you have to take care of yourself so that you can take care of the rest of the ohana. And I think that what happened with people throwing supplies in boats and coming over from Molokai and doing whatever they could to to get things in there, it's kind of a unique Hawaii thing. If we don't have our own disaster supplies and we do have to hunker down for a hurricane, if you go to a hurricane shelter, there's no food or water there. People don't understand that. And then after the hurricane passes, if something's happened to your house, then they start to deliver food and water and things like that. But it takes time, and we are the ones that we've been waiting for. That's basically the message.
0: That was Kailua's Tom Haluak, who was sharing his experience as a first-time Red Cross volunteer. He just completed his second stint assisting with the disaster response following the Maui wildfires.
4: Sleep apnea is a serious problem that affects much more than just your ability to stop snoring and sleep at night. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk about different ways to treat this potentially life-threatening condition. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show.
6: Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Aloha, I'm John Zack. Each Tuesday beginning October 10th during Morning Edition, All Things Considered and The Conversation, Hawaii residents share personal stories from their military service as part of HPR's collaboration with the StoryCorps Military Voices Initiative. The project called Hawaii's Military
5: Voices is supported by Hawaii Pacific University. These veterans have
6: a lot to say. Here's our chance to listen.
0: Time now for a reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Chad Blair talks about the chances of delays along the last leg of Honolulu's rail project. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, and this is a story by Kevin Dayton.
6: Yes, delays for the rail project. What a what a surprise. Um, what this is coming from is a, uh, a, a program manager uh, for Hart actually has advised the board that it is possible that because they're doing all that relocating of utilities along Dillingham Boulevard, that it could be pushed back even further. And of course that would also trigger more cost. And we're talking about water lines, uh, sewer lines, power lines, uh, telecommunication lines, as well as all the equipment necessary to do that relocating. The Hartboard Board had a lot of questions about this. Uh, from from the manager Nate Mettings, who by the way uh, Kevin was not able to follow up with on a separate phone call. But this part of the of the rail project has always been the greatest concern, simply where it's located. I mean, it's really uh, along Dillingham, which is already pretty crowded. There's already traffic issues, and if you go in and start tearing up the ground as they are starting to do, that is the concern that this is only going to get even worse. And I'm not even getting into into town. That's a whole other area.
0: Yeah, well, we saw all the, you know, the workarounds that they had to deal right. with in the first part of that route. Uh, but this is the most complicated section. No right. And this,
6: the contract from Hart went out to non-incorporated. That was last year. Um, they are working on relocating the utilities. It's about 15% complete. And the current idea is to get that wrapped up by February 2026. We'll see whether that holds. I, I had to actually look on the map to see well where is that physically well it's around where C is heading along Dillingham right where Kalihi pretty much turns into downtown so that's the the area that we're talking about of course as we all know the first 11 miles of, of the skyline route is up and running ridership has been limited but we have spent uh, nearly ten billion dollars to get that thing up and running uh, the current uh, deadline to complete the project to the the I guess we call it the Civic Center, right? That's an area uh, kind of in between where Honolulu Hale is. Uh, over to Kaka'ako area, it, even though there's no real sitting center there. The goal is to finish that by uh, 2031.
0: Yeah, and, you know, there was the the talk about the Malka shift, they're calling it, mm, right? Moving right. from the Mackay side to the Malka side of Dillingham, just because of the the, the big sewer uh, lines that they didn't want to have to deal with.
6: Right, and, there. of course, we all know the project has already been shortened. It's not going to Ala Moana Center anytime soon. It's now 18.9 miles planned. About a decade uh, behind schedule, much more expensive than was expected. Uh, even the federal government has is, is said that this Dillingham contract, they're calling it the critical path mm-hmm. because that's how serious they take it. And the concern on the Hart board is that somehow there will be a major setback uh, when relocating these utilities, which would then trigger all these additional expenses. We don't know for sure whether that's going to happen, but that is the concern that Kevin is reporting on.
0: Yeah, and critical path—you hear that a lot in construction. Uh, You know, and we uh, just know that, you know, there are things you can't plan on. You know, sometimes the plans say the pipes are here, and guess what—they're not. They're over there. So
6: yeah, and and once you start digging up, you may find as has already happened in some parts, a contaminated soil that has to be removed, or maybe there's a an archaeological historic uh, property, a site that is uncovered. All that stuff has to be dealt with interestingly enough um kevin reports that what is the likelihood of of this uh this happening the risk if you will it's at about 50 percent i didn't know this until i read kevin's report that uh according following the feds you have to have a high risk calculation medium risk you have to take into consideration if you will the possibilities that could happen but this much we know if there is delays because of the utilities you're going to probably have to maybe change the design uh of the of the project but we're not there yet
0: yeah and uh, i uh, w- was intrigued to learn from kevin's story about uh, you mentioned an archaeological uh, site and there was also i believe some soil contamination that had to get up. right
6: as as, as mentioned and, and that was removed i'm not sure how much it was it was, it was in cubics but i don't know how to <laughs> translate that one uh, because i'm the math was never my area uh, but it was a, a good chunk of it and those are the kind of things you just don't know um until you're right there the first 11 miles in so many ways were the easiest part of rail. That's why they started in East Kapolei, uh, rather than starting uh, in town and going in the other direction.
0: Yeah, all right. Well, want to take any bets?
6: <laughs> thanks. <so laughs> I'll, I, I'll bet we'll be talking about this again. Yes, well, thanks so much, Chad. <laughs> thanks, Kevin. Uh,
0: that was uh, Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Kevin Dayton's story at Civil Beat Donward. The one hundred and eighteen day after strike came to an end last week, the strike shut down the major film and television productions in our state, which put hundreds of industry jobs on hold. So what exactly did the union gain and how does it impact local jobs? The Conversations Russell Subiono talked with SAG-AFTRA Local Board President Andy Sickink this morning.
3: There were three really important parts that we needed to combat. We were losing wages. Basically, everyone was down due to inflation, but we were down due to not bargaining previous contracts for high enough rates across the three-year term. So this time around, we really bargained hard, and that's why we ended up in that 118-day strike. So we ended up getting basically almost 11%, I believe, across the first year as a wage increase, which is unheard of. But again, (laughs) we were down, we were making less than we were making even six years ago partly due to inflation and partly due to just not increasing across the contract.
7: And it seems like the biggest issue uh, aside from the wages was the use of artificial intelligence and actors being generated by computers instead of real people being hired for roles. Can you talk about why that was such a source of contention?
3: Right, right. Like I said, wages are always important, but AI was huge because basically it's replacing workers. (laughs) They, in past, have come on island and shot movies and scanned people's faces and replicated them by a computer to make it look like the crowd is huge. That may seem innocuous, but then they banked those faces in a video digital banking storage, and then they can pop those people into other things and not pay them, which is a huge, huge problem that's basically replacing workers and having computers make the faces, make the voices, make the actions, um, and puts a whole industry at risk. So we had to really be strong about rules for providing consent. In other words, if a stunt double is okay with their stunt action being replicated and the face of the actor that they're doing the stunt for showing up on their body, if they're okay with that and they get compensated and consent for that, great but then they are not giving permission for that performance to be used again in another thing where they may be not getting paid. So there's a lot of particular complicated rules to it, but basically they were were already using AI and just not paying people for it, (laughs) not paying actors for it. I think Scarlett Johansson hit the news last week, making a replica that looks exactly like Scarlett Johansson with no permission from her whatsoever. So, yeah, it is it is a big deal and that was part of what we fought for. I don't know if we got everything we wanted because this was the first part of the fight. <laughs> I, I see AI getting to be a bigger and bigger deal in every industry.
7: Judging from what you just said, so it's not just studios saying, oh, we're, we're not going to hire any you know actors for this project. We're just going to AI generate some of the actors for these roles but it's also the use of their likeness in perpetuity, right? It's uh, Can you explain to the audience how that impacts things like residuals and future pay?
3: So basically, at a point before these negotiations, they would scan you and pay you just for a day of pay. And then they could use your image however they wanted. Because there were no rules at the time. So you don't make any future monies on that. So you're performing. It's your face. It's your voice. Imagine them taking your voice, Russell, and using it again and again and not paying you for it. And part of the way we make money in television, for sure, is that when an episode re-airs, like I did a Hawaii 5 and I'm a I'm a spy in the episode, when that re-airs, I can get some more monies for that because I get a share in that success than the fact that it made it to be re-aired and people want to watch it again. It's sort of crazy to me that they would be able to use and possibly go back in time, <laughs> take a little baby Tom Holland when he was trying out for Spider-Man and use that performance without his consent. So it's its a big deal. It impacts the life of our career it, it basically is going to eliminate the human element. We, we all, our voices, our likenesses could be replicated by computers. And it's it's pretty amazing how close it is to that point. You can see it if you watch some shows, you can see it doesn't really look great yet, but think about the early toy stories of the kind of real life thing to what we have now. It, it's, it's growing by leaps and bounds, not, not even yearly, monthly they're getting better and better and better at this AI replication. So yeah, we're fighting for consent and compensation throughout the time and enough time notice. Let's say you sign on to a project and you're not aware that it's going to be using AI, you get a 48 hour notice. There's all sorts of fine print that we're trying to make sure so that the uh, performer will know, the performer will get a choice and if they're gonna be part of this
7: and just to go back to wages for for a brief moment when we look at the the increase in streaming and streaming services and the demand for streaming in the last say 10 years or so maybe even further back than that it seemed to me that streaming was starting to make a lot more money than they were paying to actors to be in those productions
3: that's very true the problem with streaming was the the difference in platform in other words Again, I, I'll go back to Hawaii Five-O because that's a show that twice now has been successful here in Hawaii. But in, in the old days, you would perform and you would get a residual and that would count towards your total wages for the year. It would also help to add to your retirement fund, your pension, your health and benefits. But what we saw happen in the last few years when streaming really took a stronghold, Things were being made like they had been for network television, but not being compensated for it. So we went from most of the union members at one point could qualify for health benefits. You have to earn $26,000 in a year to qualify for health benefits. In the last year, only about 20%. So 80% of our actors, our performers, were not able to even earn a minimum to get health coverage. And that is the difference with
7: streaming. So assuming that the agreement is ratified by the members, what comes next? Does everyone kind of just pick up where they left off?
3: Productions that shut down, especially on island, that had to shut down immediately because they were on strike, they will probably be the ones that are able to pick up quicker. But you do have crew and cast that have picked up odd jobs and things to keep to make ends meet. You have equipment that's been put away and shuttered. You have sets that have been struck and put away. I would be surprised to see some of the regular shows starting up maybe, maybe at the start of December. I know there's been talk of of that. Like I said, there was a few smaller projects and some movies that, that stopped on a dime. I would expect that those might pick up in the next week or two.
7: And so it sounds like there might be a little bit of a transition period where things need to get ramped up maybe a, a few yep. months or so before yep. new projects yep. can come in.
3: And that's if it gets ratified. And, and, and I hate to sound negative about that, but, but I mean, it, it is an important piece where people feel like they really walked that line and they really suffered for it. So they are going to want to understand it. And this is only for three years then we're going to have this fight all over again three years from now.
7: Andy, thank you so much for your time this morning.
3: Thank you, Russell.
0: That was SAG after local board president Andy uh, Sick Inc. and HBR's Russell SubiONO talking about the impacts of the New Deal between the Film and Television Actors Union and Hollywood Studios. now it's time for the answer to today's backyard quiz early in the show we told you about Hawaiian Moonshine, or uh, Okolehau. It was first created in 1790. Local consumption skyrocketed when escaped Australian convict William Stevenson taught locals to distill tea leaf roots in huge iron pots. King Kalakau's love for Okolehau prompted him to issue a full pardon for a man brewing it illegally. In 1889, a bottle of uh, Okolehau was smuggled into the World Exposition in Paris, where judges officially awarded the bronze medal to the government of Hawaii for the concoction. In 1915, it took first prize for excellence at a spirits competition in San Francisco. For today's backyard quiz, we asked you to tell us the original purpose of the iron pots that okoli was made in. The answer, they were used by whalers to liquefy whale blubber. And because two iron pots side by side resembled a person's backside, the Hawaiians called the booze okoli which translate, translates roughly as iron bottom. And our winner today, Bobby from the Big Island. That's today's quiz. If you have one, send it to TalkBack at HawaiiPublicRadio.org.
8: <laughs>
0: today we spotlight a Micronesian author. A Chuki storyteller draws from her Pacific Isles culture. HPR reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so tell us about this author.
4: So the author is Innocenta Sam Kiku, who's Chuki's. She's a first-time author, and she recently published books in collaboration with uh, Chuki's illustrator, uh, Lissette Yamase. Um, and the books are a children's book, and the other one is a poetry collection from her. So the first book uh, that came out is called Hey Birdie. It's a Chuki's story and a children's book. And this story was inspired by a folk tale that her mother used to tell her back in Chuuk and it's the story is about a boy making friends with a bird and the point of this book is to encourage micronesian children who are typically quiet and shy to break out of their shell and make friends and you know senta Sankiku, she runs the youth program called pacific voices at kokua Kalihi valley clinic and one summer she was asked by the program coordinator to tell these stories and folk tales to the micronesian kids and kind of get them to know each other And many Micronesian kids who grew up in the state, they don't really necessarily know what it's like in Chuuk or Pohnpei or whatever, wherever their descendants from. And Innocenta said she hopes that the children's book will uh, give them uh, a good idea of how to make friends.
8: I think it's also important because a lot of these kids, they have this feeling of not really fully welcoming to the circle but at the same time they're not sure where they're coming from so we hope that this story will make them proud of where they come from and want to be interested in figuring it out so when we talk about back home it makes sense you know and now they have somewhere to go to yeah you know you make a good point there
0: are uh, so many pacific islanders who are being raised here in Hawaii, you know, not on their home island or uh, on the continent of the U.S. And they ha- maybe have never been to Ponape, Chuk, you know, Palau, any of those places.
4: And this book was actually, this is what Lisette actually told me about giving children that sense of a place of home. And what's interesting about Lisette is that she is a charcoal artist, meaning like you'll see visuals more in kind of like black coloring, but this book is actually more colorful. And because she didn't, she did grow up in Chuuk and didn't see much um, uh, books by Chukis writers but she had to illustrate everything from memory.
8: The images on my part, because I grew up in Chuuk for most of my life so I tried to think back on like what my classmates used to look like, the books that I read when I was little, I never saw any Chuuky's books. Um, The sunsets in Chuk, oh my God, I've yet to see a more beautiful sunset than in Chuk. So I tried to think of all those colors, all the brightness, we tried to make it playful. And of course, Mama Ino guided me. So it was a combination of my personal experiences. And then she also had certain pictures of kids that she worked with. Uh And yeah, we just blended that together. And I think we did good job. That's neat.
0: Proud of what they did. Now
4: we're going into more of like the heavier stuff. So the book that was also published by Inosenta Sankiku and illustrated by Lissette, it's, it's a book called Silent Warriors, and this one tackles more of domestic violence in the in the community, and this book is more personal. So Inosenta Sankiku comes from a law enforcement background, and she wrote the poem during her time um, as a law enforcement officer in Saipan. And Lisette, with her, with her talents, she um, drew portraits of Innocentis Sankiku, who's actually in the cover, um, her grandmother. And you're going to see other Micronesian women that are in their um, traditional attire, which is really powerful, that you'll see in this book. And um, Innocentis Sankiku said that this book aims to remind women of their values and tackle misconceptions in the Micronesian communities.
8: It comes from a space of value and to really show the value of our women. Because like I said in my background of law enforcement, you know, I've seen so much and I've seen the women went through so much hardship. And at one point I was trying to figure out how do I help to make it better? And so the only way we can strengthen the victims of domestic violence is to remind them of their value. And that gives them the strength to be able to stand up again and rise to whatever potential they put their mind to. So
4: the books are gonna be readily available in bestpress.com. Um, Right now, one book, Silent Warriors*, is at $20 and the children's book is $18.95 and a portion of the profit is going to go to KKV that's here locally. And the project was a two years, it took two years in the making and um, you know, Senta never thought that she would ever become an author, but she did, and actually we're gonna be expecting two more books after. She gave us a sneak peek <laughs> into um, her newest book that's actually gonna be about her clan, so we're gonna get um, a preview of more of um, the Chukis culture.
0: Yeah, no, it's great because it uh, just helps us appreciate uh, where we live and uh, the so many uh, different perspectives in our community. But thank you so much. Thank you. We've been talking to HBR's Cassie Ordonio, who is highlighting a Chuki storyteller who has just released a couple of books this year. Well, that does it for us. We're out of time. Tomorrow, we reflect on the anniversary of Queen Okalani's death, which was marked this weekend. What are your thoughts about the conflict with Israel and Palestine? Call our talk back line 808-792-8217. You can find the conversation uh, segments on our website or uh, look on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else to tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of The Conversation.